You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning and good evening, everyone, depending on your time zones. Uh, my name is Adnan Rafiq. I'm the country director of U.S. Institute of Peace. And I welcome you on behalf of the Institute to this uh, discussion. Uh, United States Institute of Peace is a national, nonpartisan, and independent institute founded by Congress that works on preventing uh, and resolving uh, violent conflict around the world. We have maintained a, uh, an office in Pakistan since 2013, where we work with the government and the civil society uh, to help uh, prevent violent conflict, to understand its drivers, and also help formulate strategies to uh, counteract it. Uh, this discussion uh, is uh, centered around a book that USIP supported. It is titled Pakistan Here and Now, Insights into Society, Culture, Identity, and Diaspora. And uh, today we have a very esteemed panel with us, including the editor of the book, uh, Mr. Haris uh, Khaliq. He is a noted poet and a civil society activist. He has been, uh, uh, you know, the key um, uh, editor for this book. He's, he's put together this book along with, uh, um, along with six other prominent authors uh, who have contributed uh, to the book through their chapters. We have two of them with us, um, Fatma Ehsan, who is an academic and a cultural critic. Uh, she teaches at the Qaeda Azam University in Islamabad. And we also have with us Mr. Salman Asif, who is an author, playwright, uh, documentary fil filmmaker, and, and, a, and a cultural critic. Um, so without further ado, we'll uh, jump into the discussion. Uh, we'll be looking at you know, some of the contemporary uh, phenomena that you know, Pakistan has dealt with in the shape of terrorism and extremism and some of it has manifested in violent forms. The country has lost thousands of lives um, uh, in the last two decades, and uh, it's a problem that the country still grapples with. Also, the situation in the region is not too different. Uh, we've had the Taliban uh, takeover in uh, Afghanistan um, late last year, and also on the other side of the border in India, uh, we see extremist tendencies uh, increasing. So in these circumstances, we'll, we'll try to look at the genesis of, the, of this problem uh, in Pakistan by looking at the cultural and the uh, historical and political factors and how they have shaped uh, over the last uh, many decades uh, to culminate in its current form. And uh, the recent uh, incident in Texas uh, where uh, Malik Faisal, who was uh, a British citizen but had, you know, uh, was part of Pakistani diaspora, just simply shows how relevant these issues are, even to the Western uh, societies. Uh, and 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 we'll try to understand how diaspora forms its sense of identity and how some of the contemporary uh, cultural trends uh, or political trends, um, you know, shape. Uh, their worldview and uh, their actions. So uh, let me first go to the editor of the <laughs> volume, um, Mr. Haris Khaliq, 
And uh, the question is provide, request him to provide an overview of the book um, uh, with its key themes and ask him how uh, it came about. Uh, Haris Khalik. Thank you very much, Adnan. And at the outset, I must uh, mention uh, somebody you, you have not mentioned, uh, my co-editor, Irfan Ahmad Khan, who is not present here, but he perhaps did as much as I did, if not more, uh, to bring this collection together. And, uh, um, and of course, I'm thankful to the six contributors. I also have uh, had the privilege to contribute one piece on diaspora. Pakistani diaspora in different categories of Pakistani or types of Pakistani diaspora um, across the world, not just in the West. And uh, but Irfan Ahmed Khan did a brilliant job in in uh, in in copy editing, in in bringing, uh, you know, in questioning some of the uh, some of the positions taken by by the writers. Although we tried to keep, was, I mean, it was a it was a very illustrious group of writers that we. Uh, we had. So uh, we tried to keep the content. I mean, we did not change the content uh, of each of the essays. But of course, I mean, there's there's a bit of to and fro uh, at times with different writers. So I think the idea was to look at the Pakistani society, uh, not from a security lens or a geostrategic lens alone. Uh, because unfortunately, the issues of intolerance and the issues of uh, rising religious extremism uh, are, 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 you know, uh, seen through or observed through or understood through either the security lens uh, by the Western governments or even our government at times, or by uh, a very sort of um, narrow geostrategic, geopolitical lens. So our idea was to look at the, uh, the, the culture, not just the current affairs, uh, uh, and that is why the selection of this writers actually reflects that, reflects on that. It was not just the, the, the political affairs or the current affairs, the immediate, urgent, contemporary political affairs, but we tried to look at the Pakistani culture and Pakistani society. And, uh, you know, I mean, it is a projection diaspora is actually a projection of the Pakistani society and culture back home. It is far behind us in many respects. I'll come to that later. But it is a reflection or a projection of what is happening within the country. Uh, so, you know, there was a, and, and the identity question. So we, we wanted to look at it from a cultural lens and from a historic lens and seeing issues that we face in the continuum of history. I mean, there's no one starting point, as it were. Uh, for what is happening now in Pakistan or in the region, for that matter. So it was an attempt to look at that. The other thing which was which we tried to make this uh, collection um, um, different from from uh, you know the larger body of work available on Pakistan or contemporary challenges faced by Pakistan was to actually have people who are not not simply academics. I mean, there is a, there are a couple of academics in the mix. Uh, but but those academics like Fatima uh, Ehsan present here or Dr. Nazir Mahmood, who has done a very you know a good insightful analytical piece on uh, education and and uh, uh, you know the education system in Pakistan and the issues or challenges with the education system in Pakistan at different tiers. Uh, so they are academics, but they are also uh, uh, cultural commentators 
if not creative writers themselves. Uh, Fatima is very creative also, I know, but Dr. Nazir Mahmood is more of a cultural commentator. And, and uh, uh, for instance, I mean, the last book that he has done is about, uh, is a collection of film reviews that he has done. And not just Pakistani films, I mean, the world cinema that he speaks about. So we tried to, or Zahida Hina, uh, who has written about the statecraft, the history of statecraft in Muslim societies, a very sort of, if not exhaustive, exhaustively indicative piece on how uh, statecraft has taken shape over the last uh, uh, millennium uh, or more. Uh, it's uh, uh, she. She is one of our, uh, you know, um, uh, most leading arch. Uh, fiction writers, and she writes in Urdu. So we got her, we got her original piece in Urdu, and got it translated for the English edition. The rest of the the essays were written in English, and they were translated into Urdu uh, for the Urdu edition. Because I think it was very important to reach out to. Uh, as many people as we could, because, uh, you know, Urdu is the language of public discourse in Pakistan, uh, not English. But it was important to reach out to the policymakers or, in, or students or scholars uh, globally. Uh, and that is why it was written in English and, or, uh, and an Urdu version was provided for uh, uh, local consumption, so to speak. So I think um, Zahida Hina is a leading fiction writer, but she has a, a very... Um, you know, uh, 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 formidable uh, and and solid view on on history. Uh, so I think and history of, and Muslim history in particular. I mean, she's a critic, uh, but of course, um, uh, you know, she understands what she's talking about, and she has traced the whole evolution of uh, statecraft in Muslim-majority societies, uh, including the caliphates or, or sultanates that we have had in the past. Um, then we have Naveed Shehzad. Now, Professor Naveed Shehzad is not only an actor, a leading one of the leading actors that Pakistani film and, and, and television uh, has seen, but she's also, uh, uh, or was also, but still she's, she's contributing in different capacities, was a professor of literature, English literature at the Punjab University and have the head of the English department for many, many years. Uh, and she has been associated with private universities and, uh, and school systems since. So, and Naveed has written, uh, 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 you know, besides contributing to, to uh, 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 this book, where she speaks about uh, resistance poets in exile and how they are treated uh, in, in, in their societies, uh, or Muslim-majority societies. She has taken examples of um, Fares Ahmed Fares and uh, Nazim Hikmat from Turkey. Both came from uh, left-wing socialist backgrounds. Both were shabbily treated by their state establishments uh, in different ways. They had to live in exile. So she has made a comparison of how um, a, a, a sort of a, a autocratic or a quasi-autocratic Muslim society deals with uh, creative dissent. So that is what she speaks about, and she compares the two, compares their works also, because of course uh, she she has a background in literature, and she had she has recently done uh, the Aslan's Raw, uh, uh, you know, one of the most authentic books uh, one could come across on Turkish soap, Turkish uh, drama uh, that we that uh, Turkey is, has been uh, you know um, exporting to 140 countries and earning uh, billions of dollars. So you know, so she has analyzed that, and it's it's a compendium. I mean, it's not a simple book. So the, the uh, and then we have uh, um, Fatima and Salman will of course speak about themselves, and so I'm not going to get into what Fatima has spoken about. You know, rag and ras and love and 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 uh, tasawwuf. 
mysticism and how colonialism attacked the, the culture of pluralism in, in South Asia, in, uh, you know, the United India. And, and so she'll speak about that, of course. And, and Salman Asif Saab has written about uh, the otherization in Pakistan on celluloid on in Pakistani cinema, and uh, and, and and he has sort of um, he has digressed also in some ways, and it's a very um, uh, again I would stop here because he's here, he's present here, and and then we have another piece by Hassan Zaidi, who has been a filmmaker and currently the magazine editor of our premier English language daily Dawn. Uh, and he has done uh, uh, an essay on cultural confusions in Pakistan. So I think this is this is a uh, this this was our way of looking at the you know framing the the problem and in in the continuum of history, as I said before. And this was an attempt to actually um, bring together ideas of those. Um, who can influence how people think uh, and not from, uh, you know, a news media perspective, not the opinion makers or the influencers that you find on news media, but people who have ideas and people who can go beyond uh, the, the immediate and try to understand the structural issues, the cultural issues, uh, the post-colonial uh, problems that we face, or I would actually call it colonial problems. Uh, post-colonial is a borrowed category of analysis that we have learned from uh, Western academia, because I see Pakistan as a colonial country, as a continuation of colonialism in many ways. Um, so you, you see, so th this was an attempt to understand uh, Pakistan as a, as a part of the larger uh, Muslim-majority societies, but also focusing on some of the unique issues of sub-nationalism, ethnicity, linguistic diversity um, that we see in Pakistan, or cultural diversity, you know, if I sort of uh, 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 put a category on that. So this, this, this is an attempt, and I think we've been um, successful at least. Uh, nothing can be exhaustive, but we can, we have, we've been successful at least in raising some pertinent questions and also, um, you know, making people uh, think and debate, agree and disagree with us. Thank you, Adnan. Thank you so much, Harissa, for this detailed overview. And you've raised a number of key themes and uh, we hope to discuss some of them uh, during this session. So, um, I'll, I'll go to Salman Asif Saab uh, with this question that underlying uh, a number of these issues that Haris Saab mentioned and, uh, you know, extremism and all of, all of this phenomenon um, is the process of otherization. It's the process of exclusion. So uh, an exclusionary worldview uh, that divides people into us versus them. And that is a common thread that we see uh, around the world when uh, you know these problems arise. So you have uh, looked at the cinema and how uh, ethnic and religious minorities have been portrayed in the cinema. And uh, it's a fascinating chapter, but what do we learn uh, about this process of otherization that took place uh, you know, over uh, decades as, as you show? And um, you know, what does it tell us about how state and the society have evolved uh, over uh, this issue uh, since independence uh, or even before that, perhaps. Uh, you are mute, Salman. Thank you. Thank you very much, Adnan, for your question. And thank you very much, Harris, for your, um, if you like, a summary 
are a synopsis of the various streams, thematic uh, streams of this compendium. And uh, all of these thematic streams, really, um, they synergize uh, in a conscious stream, if you like, of certain key questions. And Adnan Saab, your question um, is an overarching question that the process of otherization, but let me just uh, also say that why did I choose the cinema to look at this process? Um, the essay itself, it charts the history of Pakistani cinema from 1947, from the time of um, the establishment of Pakistan as an independent country carved out of uh, the Indian subcontinent. And it also compares the past just over seven decades of Pakistani cinema uh, with nearly quarter of a century of cinematic uh, journey or a trajectory prior to 1947. It attempts to look at how racial, ethnic, religious diversity was portrayed prior to 1947 or prior to the time when Pakistan came into being and what happened after 1947. Harris has hinted in his opening remarks with regards to the plurality and diversity of the Indian subcontinent, um, the subcontinent of India, Pakistan, and if you like, Bangladesh, uh, where religious, ethnic, racial diversities and pluralism had lived at times comfortably, at times not so comfortably, at times at peace, but at no times in a state of continuous violent antimony or antagonism for centuries. So what happened after 1947 to the cinema or cinematic portrayal of this heterogeneity? How did this heterogeneity began to be seen? And that is the attempt, that is the trajectory. What does it mean in terms of looking at the question of otherization? So what I have looked, or if you like, it's an attempt to, and it's also said in the prologue uh, by Harris Kaleek uh, of, of uh, Pakistan here and now, and he says it quite rightly, that it's an attempt to problematize the question of identity, of culture, of history. So in my attempt has been to problematize the manifest facets of culture, identity, tracing the rather lesser studied nexus of political agendas, totalitarianism, and social engineering. So what does it mean? That means that it's an epistemological trajectory. That is to say that the essay would like, or the essay has tried to look at a body of knowledge. 
body of depiction of history through cinema. And cinema, as we know, is a composite form, is a composite creative endeavor. In terms of the South Asian cinema, you have song, lyrics, music directors or composers of songs, in addition to dialogue writer, in addition to the screenplay writer, in addition to the writer, and if a movie is an adaptation, then you take into account the original text of that, of that movie, then you have acting, so on and so forth. I, do, I need not go into the details of various art forms that converge in order to, 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 to have a production or, or a cinematic production. I wanted to see that how has this been possible for so many various artistic expressions and art forms to converge and converge into, as you said, otherization of religious, ethnic, racial, gender groups, which, which uh, may be referred to as minority groups. So in that sense, I've tried to explore the declining value of truth, of human values, of tolerance, social inclusion, diversity, difference, dissent, which have been seen prior to 1947, even within the cinema and at the societal level as a society's reserve currency, as opposed to the shift that we see in post-1947 cinema gradually taking shape to a systemic and rather infectious spread of pernicious relativism, which you often find disguised as uh, either acceptable or sometimes even as legitimate form of skepticism. So in that sense, the essay or the process, as you asked, of otherization, it tries to track or reveal the complexity, the nuance, the paradox of presentation of society and life through the cinema, as well as to ferret out the interplay of institutional complicity. The institutional complicity in undermining the value of societal heterogeneity and diversity. But I also wanted to study something related to it, but far more diabolical and disturbing. And that is to investigate how institutional malice towards ethnic, racial, religious, gender, pluralism, heterogeneity generates intergenerational forms of bigotry, of intolerance, um, often completely delusional sense of entitlements, and how does it weaken and ultimately smothers the societal, historical, rather practical and prevalent, um, tried and tested standards of universal form, you know, ideas of decency, of compassion, equality, tolerance, nonviolent dispute resolution, fair play and justice. The question is, do we live in a post-truth era? And this, this is what, this is how I connect the, the, the past over seven decades of, of cinematic endeavor in Pakistan with here and now that are we living, if we are living in a post-truth era, 
where do its roots lie? As Harris pointed out, religious extremism, bigotry, so on and so forth, intolerance, readiness to violence. Where do the roots lie? What are its principal symptoms? Yeah, How it affects a healthy or aspiring, or aspiring to be a healthy society? Yeah. Sorry, I pulled I, I here. I think I've. No, no, if I may ask just a, just a supplementary question on that. Uh, you also mentioned 1965 as another key year after which the portrayal of minorities deteriorated further. And, you know, you mentioned the commercial uh, aspects of it, but what's equally important is, you know, how the ideological make makeup of the state evolved post-1965. And do you see all of this post-1947 and further deterioration since 1965 as, uh, you know, just the societal evolution uh, in terms of the bigotry and hate and extremism that you mentioned, or, you know, there, there, were, uh, there, there, were, uh, there was encouragement and active sort of steer from the state as well uh, in terms of, you know, portraying uh, these uh, ideological underpinnings. So, just Thank you very comment. much for asking this question. So, um, our, our, our participants and audiences know that uh, the, fam the, 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 the famous um, Hollywood actor, Sidney Poitier, who passed away recently, uh, he symbolized and, and his life and his work is emblematic of a certain form of resistance, certain form of cracking the um, glass ceiling, as it were, uh, against uh, prevalent or dominant views on race and society. But here what we have dealt with, and I've talked about it, the institutional or state complicity, the kind of belligerence that you begin to see slowly consuming the space and crowding out those voices or those endeavors that continue to resist the shift from plurality to homogeneity, the shift from diversity to a form of self-styled entitlement. 1965 is a threshold. In 64, we had campaigns um, in Pakistan uh, amongst the cinema producers uh, and, and directors calling for the state of Pakistan to ban, um, to ban showing Indian cinema or Hindi cinema, bearing in mind that Hindi cinema or what came to be known as Urdu or Pakistani cinema, they had the same roots. Prior to 1947, there were different cities that were producing Hindi or Urdu movies. Uh, and the actors were constant, there was a huge osmosis of work, there was a huge osmosis of actors from one end of India going to another, uh, part of India or the film center. There were several cities that were the film centers and working and writers and screenwriters and uh, photographers and so on and so forth. That all changed. There was this campaign for further segregation. 
and a successful campaign in 19, that started in 1964. So suddenly we saw that the Indian cinema was, or Hindi cinema, or movies produced in India were not to be screened in Pakistan. 1965 is also the year of conflict, of armed conflict between India and Pakistan. And we suddenly see a, an amplified form of very assiduous, very belligerent form of patriotism or sense of jingoistic nationalism seeping in into Pakistani cinema. And that's not only with regards to India, but also with regards to religious, racial, ethnic minorities in Pakistan from minority groups. They became, so we begin to see almost an institutionalized scapegoating of the familiar groups overnight being transformed into monstrous others or proverbial monstrous others. Now the question has been that while there's nothing new we all acknowledge in historical bias, but it's important and I've tried to point this out that from 1965 onwards, you see, there's been an ushering of an age where the idea and practice of truthful presentation of history was abandoned systemically. One understands the pressures bearing down upon truthful presentation of life and history in cinema, but what one begins to see in post-1965 till here now, that the pressures bearing down upon truthful presentation of the plurality of society, diversity of society, heterogeneity of society, of life and history, it has become more complex. It has become more dispersed. It has become more insidious. They've all become more unsettling because they do not necessarily emanate from any identifiable big brother or the state complicity anymore, or a proverbial garble. In that sense, it seems that the Jenny is completely out of the proverbial bottle. It has acquired a life of its own whether or not state complicity, whether the state tries to portray through its policies and actions a greater respect for racial, ethnic, religious, um, or various forms of diversities, the damage that has um, been done to the, the, the civic structures of the society has deepened to a level where intolerance, bigotry has become, have become an everyday experience. You would have read of that horrific lynching of a, um, of a migrant worker in Pakistan, Christian migrant worker uh, from Sri Lanka in Pakistan and the other lynchings also, these were unheard of. So thank you. Whether at the state level there may be positive steps to heal or to mend what has been smothered 
over the decades, it seems that it will take, it has acquired, as it were, a dynamics of its own. It has acquired a trajectory of its own. Thank you. I think you have painted a rather grim but accurate picture of, you know, where the society stands in terms of such regression, uh, you know, and the incidents of lynching and um, persecution uh, that you mentioned. I would like to say that I'm hopeful. It is, it is dark and dear. It's very dark and dreary. But I think in spite of the psychological and sociological tricks that have been played upon the masses, people are ultimately hardwired to demand veracity, to resist falsehood. And there are instances in the cinematic world or, 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 or on television or in production where you do find attempts to resist falsehood to demand veracity. So there sure. is a voice within, if you like, that resists fakery, falsehood, and lies, uh, even though that voice may have been muted for a long time. And my last point is, the challenge is to turn that voice from a whisper to a role. The truth so is I, out there, if we only demand it. So I think this book itself represents one of those efforts which resist, you know, the bigotry and, and exclusion that you mentioned. Absolutely. Let me, let me go to uh, Fatma Hassan. And, uh, you know, her chapter is such a contrast because it talks about pluralism, it talks about gender fluidity and, you know, the sexual liberal, liberalism that existed uh, in this society. And, 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 and compared to what we see today. And at times, you know, when these concepts are presented to a new generation of Pakistanis, you often hear them uh, assume that these are Western uh, concepts uh, without necessarily realizing uh, how pluralistic and, you know, liberal the society was. And I think through her, um, her chapter, uh, Fatma highlights, uh, you know, uh, and through the metaphors that he, she uses as well, I, I'd like her to, to sort of construct it in, in the same manner as well. Um, you know, the, uh, this, uh, the indigenous roots of uh, pluralism uh, in subcontinent and, and in Pakistan. So uh, Fatma, would you please, uh, um, you know, explain to the audience uh, how you traced these roots and what does it mean for the contemporary uh, society in Pakistan? Hmm. Thank you very much, uh, Adnan. And thank you for this opportunity to talk about <clears throat> the essay and the book. And uh, well, uh, you know, before we started, we were also talking about uh, the process itself and, and how that went for all of us. So I can speak a little bit about that. Uh, in terms of my own experience. Uh, I'm a practicing Sufi, so I follow the Shadaliya Darkavi uh, Sufi order, which uh, originates from North Africa. So, uh, because that was kind of the Sufic lens was what I was looking at. Uh, I mean, that's how I look at, tend to look at things now. Uh, I come from a very political sort of Marxist communist background, and this is quite a shift for me too. 
But um, so since I look at things from this lens now, I uh, when I was approached and I was asked to write an essay, I thought about how I want to do it. Now, what I'm really interested in is, uh, uh, and I also value a lot, is intuition and intuitive ways of writing and intuitive knowledge, which is not something that uh, is uh, really uh, valued generally in many, uh, well, all over the world and in and, and, uh, many societies. So I wanted to, you know, write as a woman, as uh, with intuition and also how, what felt right to me. So uh, what happened for me was, uh, since I was looking at, uh, the other thing is that language, I feel, is uh, it carries a, a bit of violence in itself because how we describe things is also how we limit things. Uh, so you use certain um, words, for instance, in indigenous in your questions, uh, in, you know, agency, rebellion, those kinds of things, or liberal, sexual liber uh, liberation and stuff like that. So I find that language actually defines a lot. And there's a problem with labeling and naming, which is what happened also in the subcontinent with a lot of uh, practices which weren't really talked about. I mean, you know, there was Um, I, I think there is a connection problem. I think we'll, we'll give it a few seconds and... Okay, I, I think Fatma may need to reconnect with us and uh, we'll... Uh, you know, we'll go back to her once uh, she reconnects. Uh, let, let me go to uh, Harisab in the meantime. And uh, uh, Harisab, you know, the, the plurality that existed in our society and still exists, obviously, you know, there are always discourses within discourses and there are multiple streams of practice and communities of practice, so on to speak. How how do you see this, you know, centuries and decades old wrangling between uh, the pluralistic uh, and the uh, exclusionary or regressive uh, streaks within the society and uh, as it has played out um, and uh, especially highlighting some of these uh, pluralistic traditions that still exist within our cultural fabric? Would you like me to begin or since Fatima is back because she uh, may lose a train of thought? Sure, sure. And no, she's I'll back. So Fatima yeah, can Fatima. continue and then I'll yes. come to you quickly. Yeah, please continue. I'm very sorry about my connection. It's not usually this erratic, but you know. Well, whatever. So I was talking about language and um, uh, what I wanted to say in terms of language is also how we make certain narratives. Huh? So when we talk about uh, terrorism or we talk about extremism, there's a particular narrative uh, of, uh, you know, that kind of uh, we see um, uh, in the context of Pakistan, which is actually also internal, uh, produced internally, but also produced externally. So I also wanted to stay away from that kind of naming and labeling and do something different. Um, so what happened? was that I uh, wrote about, I took the sort of, the metaphor was music, Indian classical music. I took that style of writing and then I tried to merge it with my own thoughts and then also, uh, more importantly, with the Kalam and the work of uh, Sufi uh, poets and writers. 
because I wanted to define and talk about the suburb, but in a relational concept uh, or in a relational way through their kalam. So that's what I did. Um, so in terms of when you talk about pluralism and all of that, I mean, you know, things, sexuality was not an issue. Transgender people were not an issue. Everything was okay till the British came and they started criminalizing certain things. And I think that naming and labeling kind of, uh, and making certain things public, uh, you know, and starting uh, sort of discussions around that started to uh, actually cage things or change them. But I'm not going to uh, solely say that it was because of colonization that all of this happened. Uh, you know, there are other factors too, because when you talk about pluralism, you also have to look at the conservative side of society. And also when you're looking at the more sort of accepting uh, side of society. Um, so, um, so what I wanted to say about that is also that, uh, so that is not the uh, sole idea, is not to blame it on the British uh, also, because I think that would be giving me, uh, them too much credit for the dialectical process that the, any society or culture goes through. I mean, there are opposing voices and things and, you know, other things kind of are produced through it. Um, so um, I wanted to actually, let me just talk a little bit about some of the concepts. So for instance, I'll, I'll just begin to talk from uh, taking a definition or borrow definition um, uh, from Maulana Rumi, where he says that there's something called mana and there's something called, uh, you know, seerit. So there's something called mana meaning meaning, there's something meaning um, called meaning, um, and there's something called form. So he makes a distinction between form and essence and form is, uh, I'm putting it very simply. So form is all of us in flesh and blood with all of our biographies and identities. And essence is the meaning, which is divine love that we all embody. So he, he pins it on divine love. So if you go for the essence and, and divine love that each one, each person embodies regardless of their biography, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their uh, race and, uh, you know, other uh, intersectional, um, you know, and, uh, social markers, uh, what's, what remains is the essence that each person carries. Even the Quran says that wherever you look is the face of Allah. So you see people and you see essence. So what Sufis tend to do is to uh, sort of look past gender look past sexuality, look past, you know, uh, all of these categories, because these categories are uh, don't really have any meaning. Um, however, liberation and the idea of freedom is not attached to any particular sex, but it is something that any person can attain through the endeavor that they can put into their own excellence. So um, that is basically how I uh, wrote the essay and talked about these various, uh, you know, social markers about sexuality and so on. But having said this, I think there is a problem in terms of language and uh, using words like indigenous, because indigenous people never say we are indigenous. You know, Native Americans never said we are Native Americans. Somebody else's labeling, somebody else's naming. And I also wanted to challenge that a little bit. Thank you. Let me just also point to a, a, a beautiful paragraph in your chapter where you talk about how easy people were with the idea of uh, femininity. And, you know, uh, today what we see is hyper-masculinity. And, uh, you know, across the world you see where there are higher uh, degrees of violence in a society. It is often linked with, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the concept of masculinity in that society. So how have we come, I mean, if you can 
relate a little bit to how, especially in Sufi tradition and in the cultural tradition, how the idea of masculinity has evolved and, and the implications that we see as a result. So first, let me talk a little bit about how Tasavvuf uh, actually sees these two things, like femininity and masculinity. So um, how spirituality generally, mysticism, spirituality, and Tasavvuf also sees masculinity and femininity is a it's a, the posturing that one has in relation to the divine. So for instance, uh, femininity is described as a submissive posturing which I think a lot of feminists, when they hear me say this, will probably not like it. Because women, uh, when we say that women or feminine uh, women are uh, submissive, that's a total different thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a certain sort of posturing. So it's like even men can have femininity when they're submissive in their stance, when they surrender to uh, the divine will, uh, so to speak. Submission, you know, Islam. That's what I'm talking about. Um, so in, in a lot of uh, literature also that uh, explains uh, Sufism and it talks about femininity, masculinity also talks about how the soul is also a feminine. Um, uh, and also how that every child that is born in this world is in the first instance submissive and in that way it is Muslim, not from a religious perspective, but also by virtue of the posturing of the child as being submissive. You know, everyone is born in their sort of, uh, well, at least I believe that, that everyone is born uh, in their uh, ecstatic state. You know, they're born in, they're just, they're just coming from a sort of a divine encounter. So they are pure and they form uh, children or infant rather. Uh, they are uh, sort of, you know, uh, kind of, um, how should I say, it's submitted. Uh, they don't really have an ego. Ego comes with the social conditioning, you know, the layering that we kind of provide uh, children. So in that way, all children who are born, all infants are Muslim because they are submit submitted. You know, they're submissive. So that's the posturing I'm talking about. So in, in, in spirituality, uh, femininity is uh, the submission uh, in front of Allah. And masculinity is how we look at God. But this is not a biological thing. This is not the body we're talking about. This is a posturing and we're talking about uh, a different stream of consciousness. So in that way, any person, you know, uh, whether the sex is male or female, everyone has both ma masculine and the actor and the uh, uh, person who is not the actor, you know. Uh, we, we carry both of these qualities within us. So we, I'm talking about the qualities and not the biological uh, sex. So in that sense, I think what's happened really is that uh, I mean, this is a very long discussion and it's a very complicated one as well, but uh, a lot of the socialization that we receive when we're growing up, that is where all of this is engineered, where uh, parents sort of make the uh, boys uh, hyper-masculine because this is what it means uh, to be accepted in society as a brave person, as, a, as an active person. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, female children or girls are, are taught to be submissive. So, you know, these are the, the I'm, what I'm trying to say is that it's a socialization process which actually uh, constructs hyper masculinity and uh, also the hyper femininity equally. And both I find are very out of balance and in many ways very toxic as well. I hope I've been able to answer your question. It's very yeah, complicated to explain in a short amount of time. Well, that's great food for thought. And let me remind our audience that uh, they can ask questions. Please use the chat box on, on the web page. 
to ask uh, any question that you would like. Uh, I'll ask one more question from each panelist, and then I'll be reading some of your questions from the chat box and put them to our panelists. So please uh, do uh, uh, write down your questions. Um, um, I'll go back to Haris Khaliq Saab and, uh, you know, um, talk about uh, another aspect that this book discusses and some of the recent events in Texas, as, as I mentioned earlier, also show how important it is to understand the Muslim or Pakistani diaspora, but also from, you know, two set of lenses. One is, uh, you know, the identity crisis, as many people have called it, or how, you know, various uh, the experience of moving from their home country to the host country uh, uh, and the whole cultural and social experience, how has, they, uh, how, is it, how has it shaped their identity and created various contradictions that have been highlighted uh, by Haris Khaliq Saab in his chapter. But also uh, at the other end, how these communities have been received uh, in the host countries uh, and the rise of uh, tendencies such as Islamophobia and the alienation and exclusion that some of uh, these uh, communities uh, have um, faced and especially since 9-11, how that has further added to, uh, you know, the, the identity crisis, so to speak, uh, among these and how it then in turn translates into the, the kind of uh, tragic uh, incidents that we see. So, uh, Harissa, uh, you know, uh, your take on this, please. Um, thank, thank you very much, Adnan. Thank you again. But let me, because, you know, when Fatima had disappeared because of her erratic internet connection, you had posed another question in the middle. So let me just very quickly respond to that as well, because it is linked to what what has been said just recently, you know, just right now by Fatima. Um, I think it is not about blaming the British or, uh, uh, you know, um, um, they did not have all the agency to uh, brought about the kind of changes that we see in South Asian societies, particularly Pakistani society or other colonial societies or post-colonial societies, so to speak. Um, but there was certainly a brush with modernity. And I can speak about India. When I say India, I mean... Uh, the British India. There was a, if, if not, colonialism also brought in this European modernity to South Asia. And this brush with, and everything was not hunky-dory before the British came. Not everybody was, uh, 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 you know, comfortable uh, with, with, with his, uh, if, if it was a man with his feminine side. Uh, but there was a possibility of coexistence. There were, there were different people different uh, uh, types of people, different schools of thought, uh, um, you know, um, coexisting before them. But this brush with modernity, and there, there, there were tendencies, there were exclusivist groups, there were, uh, you know, uh, bigoted groups, um, um, you know, in, in our history, but, uh, but you, and, and, and the schools of thoughts that they had were also equally, um, problematic and, and uh, you know, anti-exclusive, uh, anti-plural, um, but a, a very sort of monolithic understanding of religion, faith, and, and it was, it was you know, um, among all, you know, dif among different sects. Uh, but the, this brush with modernity after the British brought structure to these schools of thought. And that is why the current denominations that you find in mainstream, uh, uh, you know, Islamic tradition, 
both in Pakistan and in India, and also in Bangladesh, and perhaps uh, to an extent in Nepal and Sri Lanka and Afghanistan also, are all schools that were founded uh, during the 19th century or the early 20th century, whether they are the, the um, you know, the Ahle Hadith, uh, the Deobandi school, the Barelvi school, or the kind of um, Najafi Shias, that were Shias until the time, uh, most of us were Najafi Shias in South Asia before there was a um, revolution in Iran until, you know, like 40 years ago or so. So it's, it's uh, and then they became, I mean, I don't want to get into the detail of that, but then they became, started believing in Vilayat al-Faqih, otherwise they were Najafi. So there was, all these were actually consolidated and there was a structure brought to them and there was a political expression brought to them after their brush with modernity. And then they were all manipulated and used by, first by imperial powers, and then the post-imperial uh, Pakistani state and Indian state. And that is what you see in India as well. I mean, all the Arya Samajis and Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangs and the Jan Sangs and, uh, you know, the, 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 mother, the mother party of mother parties, rather, of, of uh, the current uh, ruling BJP, they were all... Uh, all came about during during the 19th or the early 20th century. So I think it is very important uh, to to uh, look at look critically at the role colonialism played and the kind of uh, modernity they brought about, or the brush with modernity that created these structures. Where modern education was also introduced in South Asia. I don't know what the word modern. I mean, but you know, uh, uh, using the the uh, dominant parlance as it were. So, you know, when a new education was also uh, introduced in South Asia, but, you know, the structure, as I said, was given to these, uh, these voices, and they were, I mean, I must say, and there's a lot of evidence uh, uh, available to support this, this argument that they were supported. I mean, these right-wing parties were supported or encouraged by the British rulers, and that continued after Pakistan came into being, and India India became a, an independent nation. So that is one thing. The other thing about the diaspora. Now, you see, Pakistani diaspora, what I have tried to do is, is uh, looking at categorizing the Pakistani diaspora. I mean, Pakistani diaspora, again, is not a, not a monolith. And um, so I've tried to uh, look at them. Um, I mean, there are four types. I mean, I've tried to look at them, uh, look at the first type very sympathetically, which is, the Pakistani workforce, which is in largely in the Middle East, ninety uh, percent is in the Middle East, but um, I mean ballpark. But some are in Af Afghanistan, in East Asia, in um, in East Africa, up to Japan, or uh, you know, in the Far East or China or elsewhere. And and the, these people will eventually return to Pakistan. And these are migrant labor, and uh, their rights are usurped in the countries where they work and their rights are are not realized in their home country either so this is one uh, one particular category of pakistani migrant labor i mean there could be some white collar uh, uh, you know engineers and doctors or or other chartered accountants or other professionals also working in the middle east but majority of them are either skilled or unskilled labor in, in working in, from the oil rigs to different, you know, to road construction industry to, to other industries. Uh, so so that, is, that, is, that is one, one uh, chunk of a large chunk of our 
diaspora. So I, I do not particularly have any any issue. Uh, I mean, I'm not not anybody to actually put it like that. But in in terms of you know uh, to, for, towards them, I think the state should have a more uh, sympathetic role and accept them as equal citizens and actually lobby for their rights because Pakistan exports labor because Pakistan has deindustrialized itself and not uh, turned its agriculture into a modern mechanized agriculture. So there and and there is a huge, of course, population. Uh, um, um, you know, explosion in the country. So, uh, um, so th those people. I mean, there's a very different take on those people. But then there is another, and and then there is another category of of our diaspora who are living in exile because of their political views uh, from the times of General Ziaul Haq in particular, because there was a large exodus of Pakistani political workers or political dissenters uh, from in during the times of General Muhammad Ziaul Haq. Um, the, the totalitarian regime of General Ziaul Haq between 1977 and 1988, and uh, people were flogged. Uh, they were. Um, Put into prisons, they were tortured. So, uh, so there are there are students and journalists and political workers and and you know other professionals um, uh, who who migrated from Pakistan. I mean, they were forced to migrate from Pakistan, and there's a large number of them. And that continued afterwards as well because it hasn't really been uh, uh, that smooth. Uh, politically in the country. So, you know, the political dissenters and also political dissenters from smaller provinces because Pakistan has a has a very sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, a centralized form of government. And since the country has been under dictatorships for 35, 40 years and the military does not, is not a representative military, it is the continuity of the of the British Indian Army. It, uh, and, and so, so you, you don't find it a participatory, sort of you won't find an equal number or proportionately equal numbers of people from all provinces in Pakistan. So there are, you find political dissenters from smaller provinces migrating when there was a military rule during General Ziaulak or General Parvez Musharraf or whoever was there. So, so there is this, that is the second category. Now these people try to most of them, the first or second generations, try to engage with the progressive and liberal forces or, or, or democratic forces in the country. But they're so small in number that they are not influential at all. I mean, in the larger scheme of things, they are very influential in terms of contributing to consciousness raising or to to be sympathetic towards um, you know uh, the causes that uh, Pakistani Pakistanis who believe in the constitution or Pakistanis who believe in the rule of law or Pakistanis who believe in federalism or equal citizenship or democracy. They would they support them uh, by by any means that is possible. They would pick it outside the embassy. They would pick it outside the High Commission of Pakistan in whichever country they are. They will try to financially support the cultural and literary groups which are producing progressive literature. So, you know, or, or other campaigns or labor movements in the country, but they are very small in numbers. Now, there are two other categories which, which can be coupled together also. These are people who are economic migrants, largely. And these are, again, it is, a, it is lopsided. They mostly come from one province followed by another two provinces now uh, after the Afghan war and the and, and the political uh, turmoil that we have observed in the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province for the, in the last 30 years. So you will find there are two sort of from two particular regions in Pakistan, northern Punjab and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, you would find them. Um, most of the people come from there. They're economic migrants and uh, there are some professionals which are highly skilled who are a part of 
those economic migrants. And these people enjoy all, uh, you know, uh, uh, constitutional and democratic rights in the countries of uh, choice, which is the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, uh, continental European countries, Australia and New Zealand. And, and you know, and, and I mean, these are the, these are all either Western countries or, you know, the countries which are, you know, which is a projection of the West on Southeast of the world, which is Australia and New Zealand. So, so these, and you would find these people to be uh, supportive of right-wing populist political movements in Pakistan. They will be supportive of, uh, uh, you know, the, the madrasas in Pakistan. They will not, when I say they, I mean, I'm not uh, imposing a unity on all of them, but the, the major trends that you find uh, within these groups. And these people are mostly settled in the West. And it is very interesting to analyze that even before 9-11, uh, they were supporting the uh, uh, some of the right-wing political parties or or military dictatorships in the country, um, and but particularly after 9/11, as their population also increased in in Western countries, uh, you find a uh, uh, you know uh, their identity crisis within those Western societies because there certainly is Islamophobia and there is a lot of uh, uh, work available on Islamophobia. And I've quoted in my, my essay some of the work that has been done by um, the Western scholars. Uh, American, one of them is an American scholar. Actually, two of them are American scholars that, who have looked at what has happened in the US, what has happened in Ireland in particular, and some other countries uh, across uh, UK, you know, uh, across Europe and the UK, of course, and, and they've tried to, uh, see, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of siege mentality that has developed among Muslims, the kind of ghettoization that has uh, um, happened continuously, and the, the insecurity that we see. So the majority of them are very, uh, uh, you know, law-abiding citizens in their own countries. I mean, there may be these, uh, um, you know, outliers like the, the person in Texas, uh, what's his name? Um, Akram, some, um, uh, yeah, Akram Awan or something. Malik Zahur Akram, probably. Uh, and 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 there are so many other there, there are so many other examples. I mean, uh, I think five or six years ago there was an there was an incident in Saint Bernardino, and and there were other incidents in the U.S. or or in or in your uh, in you know in in London or in other parts of the of of of. Europe. Uh, so, so there is a sort of a, a, an identity crisis with uh, there, but these people are outliers. The majority of diaspora, when it comes to the country, in the, their, their adopted country, uh, the country to which they have migrated or their parents had migrated or their grandparents in some uh, cases had migrated, they're very law-abiding in these countries. But back home, they want to fix the native country. And their idea of fixing the native country is a very bigoted version of religion and a very sort of cultural, uh, you know, the, the kind of culture that they promote and profess uh, and actually work for and support in their home countries is something that has actually, um, you know, uh, uh, is not in practice in, in home countries anymore. I mean, there may be pockets, but it is not the mainstream culture here. So they find it very strange, and we find it very strange. They find it very strange that we are not the kind of Muslims that they wish us to be. And we find it very strange that while they enjoy all the democratic and civil liberties, they want us to live in a society uh, which is like Afghanistan, for instance. Uh, and they have these, uh, uh, you know, this, this nostalgia 
about about uh, uh, a Muslim state which never was. So I think this is something that that we, uh, I've tried to uh, to uh, problematize and and also, I, I mean you know and and and, the, and a bit of you know uh, life writing because I've I've quoted anecdotes and incidents, um, but uh, you know try to look at the psycho uh, analytical uh, aspects of of why. Why these people think like that? And I have, a, I have, I, you know, most of my, uh, you know, class fellows, uh, my batchmates from my engineering college, engineering university in Pakistan, are abroad, are in either in North America or in the UK. Most of them are in North America, Canada, and the US. And uh, I continue to argue with them, and I have quoted some incidents when I was visiting them a few years ago, and actually I have visited them more than once, um, uh, that, you know, why and how they could actually, they wish to have a country back home. And they think, uh, you know, according to their idea of Islam and according to their idea of, a, of an Islamic society. And, uh, and, and to, to meet that end, they support military dictatorships, and the support populist uh, uh, political leaders like our incumbent prime minister. So I think, and uh, you know, it, it's it's actually quite complicated. I mean, I've tried to uh, uh, in eight thousand words, how much can you uh, delve into the details? But but I think it it needs further investigation. Thank you. I I think uh, you know we can you know, safely say that pluralism and multiculturalism should cannot be taken as granted, even, even the West, and it, you know, remains a project uh, where, you know, uh, uh, a lot of more work is needed, uh, you know, so, so that people can live with uh, harmony and, you know, really uh, adopt the kind of plurality we're talking about. I'll go to uh, Salman uh, for brief comments. Uh, you know, he expressed, uh, you, you know, the, some resistance to, to the bigotry and hate and exclusion that we uh, mentioned. And, uh, you know, there are some analysts uh, coming back to, to, to Pakistani society who mention, uh, you know, the examples such as the Kartarpur corridor and, you know, uh, the, the debate on the Hindu temple being built uh, in Islamabad and, you know, also the newly... Uh, uh, approved and published national security policy which just came out uh, last week where you know some uh, commitment is made uh, on uh, the concept of unity and diversity and according uh, re religious or ethnic minorities their due rights uh, in, in in a society so do you see and, and you and your in your uh, chapter mentioned new wave of cinema so do you see, uh, you know, this kind of push towards uh, greater acceptance of um, minorities, greater acceptance of plurality uh, sort of depicted in this new wave of cinema? Or, you know, how do you see the current situation? And so we'll take brief comments uh, uh, from you, Salman Saab, and then Fatma Saiba. And then we have a few questions um, uh, contributed by the... Uh, by, by the audience and we'll, we'll then go to them. Uh, you are mute. The measures that you highlighted with regards to reconstruction of a vandalized Hindu temple or um, maintenance uh, and upkeep of 
a place of religious sanctity for the Sikh community. These are state efforts, commendable for sure. But have they contributed in attitudinal shift and attitudinal change amongst the masses that has been informed over decades and intergenerationally through all forms of various media exposure, which in its essence has remained one which is antagonistic to pluralism, which is antagonistic to equity, equality, fair play, um, and has been exposed to other measures by the same state that may not be as generous. For example, there is a whole discourse, a critical discourse on the newly introduced, uh, the single national curricula. And questions from various critics have been raised with regards to the, national, the single national curriculum's depiction of religious, ethnic, and racial diversity. So I guess that there is, there remains this form of tension that in spite of commendable or positive actions by the state, from the government, there's far more that needs to be done at societal level if that kind of behavior change is to be ushered. Thank you. Uh, Sorry, you asked about the new wave cinema. Would you like me to say a couple of lines? Uh, the new wave cinema has, has undertaken some very interesting experiments. The experiments, some of which are very bold, for example, the question of gender identity, the question of uh, uh, migration, the question of dissent, the question of youth empowerment, the question of, uh, you know, resistance to forms of abuse of authority, uh, harassment and bullying. Many of these issues have come within the ovule of the new wave cinema, but the new wave cinema remains exclusive. It remains the within the realm of extremely urban filmmakers, largely for urban uh, cinema audiences. I think it needs to be translated into forms and into a language, into a diction that is owned by the public. And I would hark back in my last sentence to what Fatima has been trying to say. Fatima has been saying that we have always had these firewalls. We have always had these antibodies within the society, within the societal fabric, it's veneer. What has happened over the decades is the weakening and resultant almost collapse of these fire walls that would resist against bigotry, that would resist against compartmentalization and resist against othering. Thank you.
Thank you, uh, Salman. And now let me go to Fatma and perhaps ask the opposite question, because Fatma's um, whole description of pluralism that existed in our society sort of premised on the Sufi thought. You know, that's what her chapter is all about. Uh, however, we've seen the recent developments within, you know, the, the Braille school of thought, so to speak. And I think there has been a debate in policy which has looked at the Sufi thought perhaps as a panacea for our issues with extremism and terrorism. However, you know, as we see the emergence of the likes of Tehreek Taliban, Pakistan, the TLP phenomenon within, uh, you know, the, 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 the subsect which was considered to be uh, more pluralistic and, you, you, you know, uh, tolerant and so on. So, Fatma, how do you see the evolution of Sufi thought in contemporary Pakistan and especially this violent uh, streak, so to speak? How do you see it? And uh, yeah, if, if you can, you can share yeah. some brief comments on so my view on uh, that is, uh, so if you look at the Savuf, uh, it's an inner tradition. It's an esoteric inner tradition. Um, and if you talk about change within that tradition, the change is what happens with the self. So the change is not something like, uh, it's not supposed to be um, a political sort of act or a movement, you know. Uh, uh, foremost, I think the suburb is an engagement with the self. And it is actually looking at the self as the site of knowledge production. How does that help you? How does that make you uh, into a better human being? How do you actually excel uh, and, and try to actually uh, uh, reach the level of Ihsan, which is uh, talked about in, in Islam? Um, it is not supposed to be some sort of an outward external uh, social movement. And when it becomes that, it takes on a very, very, I think, um, hideous uh, face. I don't uh, like to look at, you know, uh, Sufism or the Savav as, 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 a, as a very communal kind of a thing. It's actually, I mean, look at the practices that happen in the Savav. There have been people who have been in, uh, in Khalwa for 40 years. You know, there there have been people who do that now for 40 days or however long. This is an, uh, it's a very lonely kind of a journey. This is not about actually, you know, uh, changing others. It is about changing the self. So uh, that's, that's the way I see it. When you actually take... Uh, okay, I, I think we've again uh, lost Fatma. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Um, uh, she can continue when she's uh, back online. Uh, in the meantime, uh, let's go to some of the questions posed by the members of audience. And if I can take a brief comment from you, uh, Salman Saab, uh, or, or is Fatma back with us? I am back again. <laughs> I'm really sorry. No, no, uh, no. You can complete your, uh, yeah, your thought. Yeah, I seem to be buffering more than talking. <laughs> so, um, 
like I was uh, saying, uh, for me, this is a very inner tradition. And when you try to, and it, the change actually, uh, basically the idea in, in the server for Sufism is that if you change the self and if you come into interaction with other people, that sort of change will just reflect and carry on. Uh, and it's not something that can be seen also. You know, that kind of knowledge is from the heart to the heart. It's not something that's uh, actually displayed or, or acted out uh, in the external realm. So I, I think when you try to impose that kind of external externality on, on Sufism, that this is the face that you see of it, which is uh, TLP and so on. Um, so that's my sort of take on it. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll take some questions from the members of audience. And uh, if I can put this question from Peter to Salman uh, Saab, uh, Peter raises the issue of caste, you know, while we've looked at the depiction of religious minorities and, you know, maybe ethnic minorities, uh, but caste has been another sort of um, um, uh, otherizing sort of fault line uh, within subcontinent. And even in Pakistan with Muslim identity, it also still kind of plays out underlying various other identities that, that we acquire. So, um, yeah, your quick comments on how caste kind of plays a role in, in, in contemporary Pakistan society, if at all. Uh, you are mute, Salman. Well, thank you for this question. Um, caste plays a very interesting role in a predominantly Muslim Pakistani society as opposed to... Um, South Asian societies where Muslims are a statistical minority. So, for example, while in other religions um, in, in South Asian countries, the caste uh, would create different kinds of hierarchies and, dis um, and, and would disaggregate uh, group, certain groups from other groups, um, what we have seen increasingly in Pakistan, the caste has been played out with another form of group identity, which is Baradri. So Baradri is the brotherhood or the fraternity, as it were. So sometimes a fraternity is a certain caste, uh, and sometimes it's not quite a caste, but it's a fraternity, which is which identifies itself rooted to a certain geofocus of the country. So what we find is an intergenerational play of certain fraternities or certain groups based on a brotherly or, or identity or fraternity supporting, abetting, promoting, protecting, each other for various opportunities and going up the ladder sometimes to the level of decision making. So you would find certain groups which are either castes or fraternities or brothers or both. For example, predominantly in electoral um, realm or, 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 the, or the electoral politics, you would find amongst the law enforcing agencies, you'd find in judiciary, you'd find in 
amongst the lawyers. So it has become as identifiable as that. So in that sense, there's often this kind of interplay between power brokers belonging to certain castes and supporting, as I said, abetting and protecting members of their baradri or caste. It doesn't necessarily, it sometimes even cuts across social markers. It cuts across the, you know, the, 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 the socioeconomic um, background of an individual, sometimes it is quite enough to be belonging to a certain caste or to a certain bradri. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Salman Saab. Um, I'll go to Fatma next with a question from Thomas, who's asked that we've talked about blaming or not blaming the British but no one has mentioned Zayaul Haq and his Islamization program. What responsibility do we put on that? So, you know, uh, your discussion on pluralism and all that, you know, uh, what would be your response to this? I think since we have lost Fatima again. Uh, yes, and I think Harris talked about it, and Harris, you can... Yeah, let me, take, let, me, let me take that question. I think I did speak about Zhaul Haq uh, and, and, and the role Zhaul Haq played, uh, but perhaps not in uh, 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 as much uh, detail as I should have. I think general, what General Zhaul Haq did, he institutionalized the process of uh, Islamizing laws in Pakistan, but the tendency was there even before him. So I think we must understand that General Zawlaq used Islam uh, to consolidate his power, one, and to further the, the, uh, a certain brand of, of, uh, uh, of right-wing Islam, where, which was needed, uh, unfortunately, at that point in time by the U.S. Uh, establishment as well. Uh, um, to, to fight the Cold War in Afghanistan. So a certain brand of Islam was promoted and uh, we were, we were uh, our, our, from our curriculum to our, uh, uh, you know, cultural expression, everything uh, uh, took the brunt of that Islamization. And uh, not just that, he fragmented society or, or the policies that he pursued fragmented Pakistani society on, on sectarian and ethnic lines. And the book does talk about that uh, uh, across different essays. Thank you. And uh, so I'll go to uh, Salman Saab for, uh, with the next question, um, where uh, Farhan asks that democracy as a, uh, as a majoritarian system does not sit well for, I suppose he means diverse nations like Pakistan which is why uh, Sindhi and Buloch are very skeptical of it. Um, so how do you see, perhaps this is the question about the, the, the kind of federation that Pakistan has, the struggles that Pakistan has had with federation and uh, the majoritarianism, the majoritarian streak within, within democracy, so to speak. So your comments, uh, Salman Saab, on this. Well, I know that Harris will have a lot to say on this, but let me just say uh, that Pakistan is a very decentralized country and they're federating units. And I'm, I'm a little 
surprised at this question because uh, those of us, and I don't know where, where uh, our, our worthy colleague um, participant has asked this question lives. Farhan is, is Farhan is the name? Um, so I wonder if he lives in Pakistan and if he lived in Pakistan and if he lived, for example, in Balochistan and Sindh, as he has pointed out, and I'd be happy to point out Khabib Pakhtunka, and I'd be happy to point out the newly merged areas, the former Fata, and I'd be equally happy to point out the former East Pakistan and now Balochistan, now Bangladesh. So my, my sense is that from all these streams, there's always been a demand for more democratization rather than lesser of democratization. And I think if his, if his, uh, if his, if, if his drift is towards anti-democratic forces, or if his drift is, um, if you like, statistical majority of uh, persons living in a certain province of Pakistan, I think that's a different debate. But what we have seen is that in, in Pakistan's history, you've had the most popular prime minister of Pakistan from Sindh. Um, you, 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 you've had elections being decisively won or lost, not always in Punjab, but in other provinces also. Um, and then you have, again, the big example of former East Pakistan and now Bangladesh, uh, whereas the, the, the East Pakistani, former East Pakistani population was larger than that in West Pakistan. But here you have an example of the majority of the people having to flee for their identity, for their rights rather than staying with the whole, pushing themselves to the margin and then carving out a nation of their own, a country of their own, out of a long grievance discourse along the lines of non-democratic, non-inclusive policies and actions. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little uh, sort of, I, I don't know how to address this question, but as far as I have understood, I, I don't think uh, that the provinces that have been pointed out here, Balochistan, Ansend, and I've added others, uh, they have fear of majoritarianism. I think they have fear of lack of self-representation. They have fear of lack of transparency, they have fear of lack of fair play and non-democratic forces occupying the space and, and being sort of determining the agenda as it were. Thank you, uh, Salman Saab. I'll go uh, to Haris Saab for his take on, on this question, if you'd like to add Haris Saab, but let me pose the last question uh, of this session as well to you. Um, uh, Johannes um, asks that to which extent have strained relations with neighbors, in particular India, Afghanistan, Iran, um, and even China, he mentions, reinforced the predominance of the military 
and prevented a focus on internal development. So the civil military uh, question, uh, which is quite customary, I think, on all debates uh, on Pakistan. But first, your take on the previous question and then your final comments on this. Uh, thank, thank you, Adnan. I think Farhan has posed a very interesting question. And let me remind uh, Farhan Sab that it is not the numeric strength of Punjab which bothers people. It is the unconstitutional role played by certain institutions where Punjab dominates which bothers people in smaller provinces. So there's a difference. And I would just reiterate what Salman Asif Saab has said, that it is democracy actually which the smaller provinces have been asking for and demanding since ever. And uh, uh, particularly after 1971, when, we, when, when the, the Pakistani establishment refused to accept uh, the people's mandate uh, of the 1970 elections and did not let the Awami League which, was, uh, which had swept across East Pakistan then uh, to form the government in Islamabad. So I think it is important to remind us that all the provinces in Pakistan have been uh, asking for more democracy and they have the ability, their political leadership always has had, always had, had the ability to uh, differentiate between majoritarianism and democracy. And that is why even today, if you look at different movements like the PTM, for instance, or if you look at, I mean, there are certainly, I mean, there are uh, insurgents or separatists in different parts of Pakistan as well. But majority of political uh, dissent that we see in Pakistan interestingly asks for the rule of law and constitutional rule. So it is interesting that we, all of us, the Democrats in Pakistan, whether they are in Punjab or they are in other smaller provinces in today's Pakistan, they actually ask for democracy, more democracy in Pakistan, rather than uh, seeing Punjab as dominating uh, when there is uh, um, uh, democracy, because the process of negotiation only happens when political uh, leaders of different provinces, of different regions, of different city, cities come together and reach consensus. And our political history is full of such examples uh, from passing the 1973 constitution um, unanimously, or maybe there were a couple of people who actually dissented, but it was almost a unanimous decision to pass the constitution in 1973, adopt the constitution, uh, proclaimed. And then we have, uh, 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 the, you know, this different amendments which have come through uh, after an, uh, a very uh, uh, involved participatory uh, democratic process involving all stakeholders. So I think democracy and federalism are the only solutions to the malaise, uh, the political malaise that we that we see in Pakistan. Uh, more democracy and 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 you know and our belief in in federalism. Uh, the, the other question about the civil, you see, the the the, the whole point of this book, and I'm uh, putting it on you know uh, you know on a lighter note, uh, in a lighter way. And the whole point of this book is actually to take us beyond the immediate uh, and speak about the immediate in the historic context and look at the future because the the the, the, the ability if you have the ability uh, as much as uh, uh, you know as 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 much ability as you have to look into the past actually helps you look into the future as well uh, and and understand the present as well. So, of course, there's been a civil military tension in Pakistan and there's not been, and again, because the constitution was, was either held in abeyance 
or, uh, or, or, or suspended during different martial rules. Uh, but the relationship with the countries in the region, uh, it's a chicken and egg situation. If you have less of, of, uh, 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 of military involvement in politics and more of, uh, uh, you know, politicians determining how it should look like, uh, the tensions will be eased. And if you have, but, but at the same time, if you look at the region, I mean, the kind of government that we see in India for the last seven years is not helpful uh, to this cause either. Because India, uh, if Pakistan has, uh, if you look at the Human Rights Watch report recently, uh, Pakistan uh, has a very uh, uh, poor uh, performance when it comes to freedom, uh, to free speech, freedom of expression. But uh, India has a very, you know, an equally poor performance, if not more, when it comes to minority rights, particularly uh, the treatment meted out to Muslims in India over the last few years. So I think it is important to understand uh, that it is it is important that military uh, retreats from the political role it plays, but that is not the only factor. I mean, there are, it is much more complicated than that. When it comes to Iran and when it comes to Afghanistan, the tensions that we see, is there is a desire in Pakistan to see a compliant Afghanistan, and there's a desire in India to see a compliant Pakistan. So I think it has to be regionally resolved. And I'm a, I'm a very, um, uh, you know, a staunch believer in, in regionalization and regional solutions to the problems, uh, rather than looking to uh, international bodies or to Western powers to come and resolve our issues. Thank you so much, Haris and Salman Saab and Fatma uh, for joining us and sharing your very insightful views. Uh, we've run out of time, but uh, I encourage uh, the audience to Please go through and read this book, Pakistan Here and Now. And what you have heard today are just few glimpses of uh, various themes uh, that have been discussed in the book. But it is it has a very rich discussion uh, uh, on what shapes contemporary Pakistan and what implications uh, does it have uh, on our on our daily lives. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, and uh, please do tune in uh, to our. Uh, future discussions as well on uh, issues like these. And uh, we look forward to your feedback. Uh, please feel free to email us um, and uh, have a great day. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Adnan. And thank you, uh, United States Institute of Peace, for helping us bring out this book and for having this uh, uh, webinar. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.